0: Welcome to The Change, a podcast about perimenopause for people in their 30s and 40s. I'm your host, Caitlin O'Connor, naturopathic doctor with a practice in Denver, Colorado, supporting patients with their health and hormones throughout the many phases of life. I'm happy you're here. Let's dive in. Today is a hot flash, a brief review of a specific topic relating to perimenopause, and today we're going to talk about weight changes, body shapes, and health at every size. Content warning. In this episode, we're going to talk about weight, body changes, and how to implement a health at every size philosophy when it comes to perimenopause. If conversations about body size and shape are not something you want to have right now, feel free to skip this one. So for folks who are unfamiliar, I want to start with a brief primer on the health at every size philosophy, which I'll refer to in this episode as HAES, H-A-E-S, just as an abbreviation. So, this is the way that I support and approach weight in my clinical practice. And I'll begin with this quote from the Association for Size Diversity and Health, which is a group that promotes the clinical application of the Hayes philosophy. So, according to their website, the health at every size approach is a continuously evolving alternative to the weight centered approach for treating clients and patients of all sizes. It is also a movement to work to promote size acceptance, to end weight discrimination, and to lessen the cultural obsession with weight loss and thinness. This approach to weight was formalized by researcher Linda Bacon and laid out in detail in her book, The Surprising Truth About Your Weight. It emphasizes the following five principles. Principle one, weight inclusivity. This principle advocates for accepting and respecting the inherent diversity of body shapes and sizes, and rejecting the idealization or pathologizing of specific weights. Principle two is health enhancement. It supports health policies that improve and equalize access to information and services and personal practices that improve human well-being, including attention to physical, economic, social, spiritual, emotional, and other needs. Principle three is respectful care. So acknowledging our biases and working to end weight discrimination, weight stigma, and weight biases by providing information and services from an understanding that socioeconomic status, race, gender, sexual orientation, age, and other identities impact weight stigma and support environments that address these inequities. Principle four is eating for well-being, which promotes flexible, individualized eating based on hunger, satiety, nutritional needs, and pleasure, rather than any external regulated eating plan that's focused on weight control. And principle five is life-enhancing movement, So it supports physical activities that allow people of all sizes, abilities, and interests to engage in enjoyable movement to the degree that they choose. So how does this translate into practice for me? It means that numbers on a scale are not how I assess my patient's health. I look at labs. I ask about quality of life. We review foundational habits like food and sleep and stress and movement. And I do my best to address my own biases about what a healthy person looks like. It also means that I frustrate and annoy a lot of my patients. In practice, it is common for folks to come to me to list weight loss as a health goal. And then we have to really examine what that means. Oftentimes, it means me reviewing the health at every size approach and also debunking many of the myths that we have about weight and health and how our bodies should and shouldn't look. And I know people get upset with me about this and think I'm holding back some magical diet or supplement. But the thing is, attempting weight loss through dieting mostly doesn't work and often causes harm. So even though as weight loss is used as marketing and drives so much of the content in the holistic space, it is something we really have to approach critically. I have observed that one of the most feared components of perimenopause and beyond is how it can change people's bodies. And the fact is, most people's bodies will change. The numbers are variable, but on average, people may gain between 5 to 20 pounds during this transition, and often much of that weight will be carried in the midsection. The reasons for this are multifold. As we age, muscle mass decreases, which impacts the amount of baseline fuel we need to run our bodies, and this leftover fuel is often stored as fat. The sleep disruption and changes to stress processing, which results in more cortisol output, can also change the way our bodies store fat as well. Perimenopause can also be a time of increased insulin resistance, so our cells might need more insulin to regulate blood sugar, and then this higher insulin output can lead to weight gain. Also, estrogen seems to play a role in metabolism. So as we have estrogen levels changing and eventually decreasing, this can have an impact as well. The overall effect is having lower lean body mass, higher fat mass, and a lower metabolic rate, all of which can contribute to net weight gain and changes in body size. Interestingly, fat tissue actually produces a type of estrogen, and some folks theorize that the extra weight put on in menopause could be beneficial, protecting both bone and brain health as we age but still people might wonder what to do about it. And will you be mad if I tell you to do nothing? And what I mean by nothing is weight gain in and of itself is not a sign that anything is wrong and not an indication that anything needs to be treated. And I know, that is a major mindfuck. We have been so ingrained with the idea that weight gain is bad and unhealthy, it can be frustrating and challenging and even make folks really mad to hear that it is not. Often in response to a Hayes approach, opponents will claim that because we reject the belief that fat is inherently unhealthy, and by refusing to promote restrictive diet cultures, that practitioners are promoting an unsafe and unhealthy lifestyle. This is not true at all. In fact, by not centering weight as the only metric that matters, it frees us up to focus on measuring parameters that actually do make a difference. For example, I always advise my patients, especially perimenopausal patients, to find a form of exercise that they enjoy, but that also increases their muscle mass. I always review stress and sleep and check for blood markers of insulin resistance and inflammation, regardless of body size, and then we'll treat those markers appropriately. We talk about alcohol and sugar and how these things may have an outsized impact on those markers of inflammation and blood sugar, especially during the perimenopausal years. But I do this for every size of patient, which is actually a great approach to healthcare because many folks with insulin resistance and elevated inflammatory markers will be in thinner bodies. But because we are obsessed with thinness as a measure of health, they will get overlooked and underdiagnosed. And here's the kicker. Folks can modify all of the above lifestyle factors and still not lose weight or change their body shape in a discernible way. But they still will feel better and be having a net positive impact on their health. But when we center weight loss as the only metric of success, it discourages folks from pursuing healthy habits that do not result in weight loss. So if I decide to take a 10 to 15 minute walk on my lunch break and I benefit from the fresh air and the vitamin D and chatting with my coworkers and improved energy, but I don't lose weight, I deem that experiment a failure and I stop doing it. Or if I decrease my alcohol intake to zero to four drinks per week and my sleep improves, my anxiety decreases, my stomach feels better, but I don't lose weight, I give it up because weight is the only metric that matters. In this way, we can start to see that by focusing on weight, which is a very hard metric to maneuver, as the only important outcome, we get frustrated and drop out of activities that are actually supporting our health in many other substantial ways. And truthfully, most people will not experience major sustainable weight loss in their lifetimes. This is because most people have a weight set point that is determined by a myriad of factors. That set point will be stable within 10 to 20 pounds throughout most of their lifespan and is pretty resistant to change. For example, the research shows that only 3 to 10 percent of folks who lose weight secondary to restrictive diets will maintain that weight loss over time. And additionally, diets can be harmful, both mentally and physically. In fact, according to Heather Carina in their awesome and highly recommended book, What Fresh Hell Is This? Perimenopause, Menopause, Other Indignities, and You?, Menopause is the second highest risk group for disordered eating after adolescence. We also have to acknowledge the impact of fat phobia on medical care. This is a systemic issue which makes the research on body size and health very hard to parse out. When fatter folks have bad outcomes, can we attribute that to fatness itself, or is it secondary to the impacts of anti-fat bias in health care? It is well acknowledged that when fat folks seek medical care, they are often dismissed and told to lose weight without a full medical workup. This delays time to diagnosis and also results in larger people avoiding medical care altogether. So while it may seem that having a larger body increases risk for disease, it's not actually clear if that is secondary to the workings of the body itself or the workings of a fat phobic medical system that is providing substandard care to fat people. Again, I'll recommend the book What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat by Aubrey Gordon for a really in-depth and eye-opening analysis of fat bias and fat phobia in healthcare. During perimenopause, fat folks might not get the medical care that they need. First, all of the symptoms might be written off as being related to weight, and the only advice given is to lose weight without anyone looking at other lifestyle factors or even taking labs. There also may be differences in doses, of hormone applications, especially hormones that are dosed via creams and patches, which are applied to the skin. This may need to be dosed differently for people with more subcutaneous tissue. There's not enough research on this, but it's definitely something to consider and discuss with a pharmacist or prescribing doctor if larger folks are considering topical applications of hormone therapies. So where does that leave us? With changing or changed bodies that don't fit what we've been taught about the standards of beauty. There's also a real privilege associated with thinness and youth, and there can be a real loss of access to that privilege for those who had it before, and that can legitimately be a scarier, unwelcome transition. Not everyone will feel the same way about how their body changes, but many folks will have some degree of distress, and I do not want to diminish that experience. So while we are working on dismantling the system, which is the real problem here, what are some things that can be done to address the angst that many may experience with changing body shape? So the first step is to start to deprogram yourself. Again, this doesn't fix the big picture. It doesn't eliminate the real ways that anti-fat bias causes harm. But it is an area where we can exert a modicum of control. Some suggestions. Get rid of your scale. You really don't need it. And you can decline being weighed at many healthcare appointments as well. Try to divest yourself from conventional beauty standards. Stop consuming mainstream beauty and quote-unquote women's magazines The majority of them literally exist to tell you something is wrong with you and sell you something to fix it. Diversify your media intake. If you're on social media, stop following accounts that make you feel bad and start populating your feed with folks that represent the true diversity of body sizes and shapes that exist. One recommendation would be reading or listening to the book The Body Is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor and then following them on social media. If you're comfortable, find places to be naked with other folks saunas, bathhouses, steam rooms, etc. One thing that I think is missing from mainstream American culture is a communal bathing tradition. The downside of this is many of us go through life not seeing a ton of casual and non-sexual naked bodies just hanging out. The more bodies you see, the more you learn what an unfiltered body looks like in all of its glory. So if you're interested, search out opportunities for safe and accepting group nudity, as I think this can really help people become more comfortable with their size and shape. Talk with your friends and family. Agree to stop negative body talk, body shaming, and dieting talk. Practice weight-neutral compliments with each other. Consider as a collective cutting out the narratives of diet culture and decide to put your energies elsewhere. If you can't get buy-in from folks, at least ask them to stop talking about weight and bodies in your presence. Do your best to set clear boundaries on what you are and are not willing to talk about. Figure out what makes you feel good in your body. Different forms of body work, movement, self-care practices. Focus on making yourself feel good. Explore your sensuality and sexuality alone and with others. And break up with the idea that your body needs to look a certain way to receive pleasure. Push your boundaries in what you consider appropriate attire. If it is fun for you, explore your identity with clothing, hairstyles, makeup, etc. Try not to worry about being age or body appropriate and tap into what makes you feel vibrant and most like the truest expression of yourself. The bottom line is this, the many hormonal shifts and changes of perimenopause will likely result in both weight gain and changes in body shape. People may feel a variety of ways about these changes, but many folks will meet them with resistance and shame. Explore the question of why. What stories have you been told about weight and are they really true? Try on some alternative narratives and see how it feels. Be expansive in your definition of wellness and make sure to include room for the body that you have right now. And if your scripts about your body size and how it relates to your value are hard to change, think about therapy or counseling with a haze informed therapist. And of course, continue to prioritize doing the things that make you feel good and promote health in your body, but don't use weight as the measure of success. Find more meaningful ways to assess your progress. Focusing on how you feel, being kind and loving to yourself, and figuring out the unique equation of lifestyle habits that work for you is key. Okay. I know some of y'all might be mad at me right now and we're hoping for life hacks and supplement tips when it comes to weight loss. And I know from personal experience that shifting your paradigm around weight and wellness is really sticky and uncomfortable business. But I love y'all and I want you to be well. So consider opening up to the possibilities. That's all for now. As always, you're doing a great job. See you next time.